Shelley Schlender. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, October 24th, 2017. Coming up, a Denver scientist will explain why he's formulating a brand new way to predict disease-causing protein mutations. And we'll talk with Kelly Wiener-Smith about asteroid mining, robot swarms, mammoth cloning, and more. All these are part of her new book titled Soonish, 10 Emerging Technologies That'll Improve or Ruin Everything. First, we'd like to thank you listeners and members for making our fall pledge drive such a successful one. And for those who heard the snippets from an interview we aired last week on the Pledge Drove show with Robert Lustig, author of The Hacking of the American Mind, we'll air that interview in full on next week's show. Thank you again. And now we'll continue with a look at some of the recent news in science. Let's start with a shout-out to CU Boulder professor John Bailey, who studies neutron stars. Those stars are the collapsed cores of once large stars. In theory, neutron stars are so dense that one teaspoon of a neutron star may weigh more than Mount Everest. Yes, Mount Everest. Neutron stars were in the news recently when scientists announced the first ever evidence of two neutron stars colliding. Their collision has been coined a kilonova. The two neutron stars are estimated to have been whirling around each other at more than a thousand times per second before colliding, that is, merging, or maybe doing both. And as for the evidence that this evidence really did occur, it wasn't like the Star Wars movies where Darth Vader's Death Star blasted away a planet and Obi-Wan Kenobi reported a great disturbance in the Force. Evidence for the Villanova collusion came from scientists themselves doing meticulous measurements of subtle disturbances in both gravity waves and electromagnetic waves. CU Boulder's John Bailey was a co-author of two of the published studies about this, including one in Science Magazine. Bailey says our new ability to measure these incredibly violent events will help probe the evolution of the universe and discover new technologies that may someday help us explore even more. Congratulations to John Bailey for his contributions to these great discoveries. As another new discovery that harkens to our dreams of explorations, Japanese scientists have documented the likely existence of a large, long cave on the moon. The cave is probably the result of ancient lunar flows on the moon that left behind a lava tunnel. Satellite measurements of gravitational variations are among the clues that have led scientists to estimate that this cave might be more than 30 miles long. All this is interesting on its own. It also opens the possibility of a habitable moon cave that offers protection from harsh cosmic radiation, from meteor strikes and solar flares, plus an area that might be easier to seal off and fill with rooms and oxygen and so on. All this might someday help with any plans to mine the moon for water or materials to help build spacecraft. And anyone looking for a vacation home, say, a cave inside the moon. (laughs) Well, closer to home, if you've been loving the bright reds and golds of autumn, tomorrow afternoon you can appreciate one of the great centers of tree diversity along the Front Range. That would be University of Colorado Boulder's campus, actually, which features over 100 tree species and over 5,000 trees. Leading tomorrow's tour will be CU Boulder arborists who love the trees and will love telling stories about them. 
The popular tour starts promptly at 5 p.m. Wednesday, that's tomorrow, at the CU Boulder Museum of Natural History at the south entrance. Weather's supposed to be warm and sunny for the tour, so but bring a light jacket just in case. Enjoy this tour of the trees, starting at CU Boulder's Museum of Natural History. That's tomorrow at 5. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. When the amino acids within a protein mutate, sometimes it works out, but sometimes it does not. That can lead to serious genetic diseases. A new model might offer a better way to spot how these proteins evolve through time in a good way, but also helps spot the problems. The author of this new study is David Pollock, a biochemist at the CU School of Medicine. His brand new paper has a very technical title, get ready, Sequence Entropy of Folding and the Absolute Rate of Amino Acid Substitutions. This is a very technical model. Pollock says it's inspired by a statistical mechanics model called the Stokes Effect. It suggests that when the wrong amino acid seems to fit a protein especially well, over time it can actually do more to mess up the protein than an amino acid that doesn't work from the very start. Pollock says his new model might make it easier to spot problem mutations. That's important because on average, a single protein in our bodies contains 300 amino acids arranged in a very specific sequence and coiled and folded in a very specific three-dimensional shape. Now here's CU Boulder evolutionary biologist David Pollock to say why it's challenging to find the problem mutations in a string of 300 amino acids within the typical protein. 300 is a reasonable uh, size. They're probably mostly from, say, 100 to 1,000 amino acids, but there's some variation. They're strung together. They're all one single long molecule. Okay, I'm thinking of a very long ball of string that somehow is kind of, somebody uses hairspray on it or something so that when it has a kink or a curl, it holds that kink or curl as part of what defines what it's going to do next. That's right, except the, the hairspray is the interactions between those component amino acids themselves. If we think about them as, you know, let's just use that number 300 you mentioned earlier. If you think about 300 of these amino acids, one after the other, there's 20 to the 300th power different combinations that you could have of those amino acids. Uh, and it's it's that really, really big number that's key to understanding all of this because most strings of proteins won't fold it up into anything specific or anything useful at all. And it's only that very, very small subset that folds into something useful that matters. You used a big number there, and my brain stopped and said <laughs> to itself, I know that 4 times 4 is 4 squared, and that's 16. And you described a number that was so big that I don't know if there's that many stars in the universe, the, the number that you described, for how many combinations of things you can put together in terms of amino acids and this basically the typical protein in our body. Right. And that's exactly the point is that it's an incredibly huge number, almost unfathomably huge. There are 20 different amino acids 
all we're doing is saying 20 times 20 times 20 times 20 uh, until we get to 300. And that's the number of different possible arrangements. That's all. How many combinations of them actually make something that works inside of our bodies? Really, really small. Your DNA is encoding what these sequences will be. And your DNA does mutate. That's what allows us to evolve over time, over the generations, right? But you're hopefully not mutating too much, uh, especially within your body. We know that lots of changes happen in proteins all the time, and a lot of those changes just don't matter very much. One of the things we've noticed is that sometimes specific amino acid changes will cause a disease in one organism, like humans. So you have to say, well, how, how does that happen? Are you right now talking about that guy who died in 1903, George Stokes? And his his way that he said that there's a way to measure any chemical action to see how much energy destabilizes something and what happens after it stabilizes itself again. The Stokes effect. Right. Okay. So the the Stokes the Stokes effect is is definitely part of it. So we had observed this uh, earlier before this paper. And we, we called this thing the evolutionary Stokes effect as, as an analogy to Stokes's understanding of molecules. And the, the basic idea in the evolutionary context, the reason we say that there's an analogy is because what we see is that when you have a substitution of an amino acid, over time, if that becomes the predominant uh, amino acid in the protein, over time, other changes will occur in the protein and essentially adjust to that amino acid uh, such that you'll tend to favor that amino acid. That amino acid will be more stable than it was even when it was substituted. If you're talking about amino acids, here you have this protein that's humming along, doing its stable thing, knows how to do it, has been doing it for millions and millions of years or whatever. And sometimes another amino acid comes in and takes the place of one of the amino acids that's been part of that chain for a long time. And if it can kind of slide in there and the protein can keep doing what it's been doing without noticing for quite some time, it's as though that protein is more likely to accept this change to its basic structure. It doesn't throw off the amino acid, it accepts it for better or worse. Generally speaking, if the protein has to accept the new amino acid um, in order for it to become a substitution, that is, in order for it to spread through the entire population, what we're saying is, though, that even after it's accepted it, that the contribution to stability of that amino acid will become higher and higher over time. The old amino acid that you used to have that you were happy with for a long time, after a while of having the new amino acid, that old amino acid will no longer be acceptable. Okay, so you, what you've described is it may be that the old amino acid, when it comes back, will not fit that shape quite as well as the new one does. Exactly. Sometimes that's good, sometimes it's bad? Mostly that would be bad. So that is, if the old amino acid doesn't fit the shape because it's adjusted to the new amino acid, uh, then the old amino acid will be deleterious. What we're really doing here and the, the parts you say are, you know, all sort of very complicated is that we're translating the statistical mechanics into this context where we're 
talking about sequences that evolve over time and fold into a specific shape. The Stokes effect that got you thinking this way is kind of a machine effect that's not usually thought of in terms of biology. Right. We're using it as an analogy. This isn't a, literally a Stokes effect. We're saying that the evolutionary process has an analogous thing, uh, the evolutionary Stokes shift. There's just a lot more sequences that, that can make the protein stable if the specific amino acid contribution to stability is higher. And that's sort of that's how, how entropy is driving this Stokes shift. Okay, so for conditions that have a genetic side to them, like cystic fibrosis or Duchenne's yeah. muscular dystrophy mm-hmm. or, or certain kinds of epilepsy or certain kinds of brain-wasting diseases that are inherited or the kind of breast cancer where there's an 80% risk that someone will have it by the end of their lifetime. You're talking about diseases like that. Exactly, yeah. Those are, those are all examples of genetic diseases where you've got You've got a mutation and a variant, and that causes a change in the protein, uh, and then it doesn't work as well, or it works in a way that that, uh, doesn't work well with the rest of your body, and then you've got problems. Is this an intellectual uh, pursuit for you, or do you have a personal reason that this matters to you? Well, I've been studying evolution my whole life. It's a fundamentally important to understand evolution at this level, to understand why diseases in general occur and why why we are the way we are. I don't know. I guess it's personal because I, I think it's central to understanding who we are and why we are the way we are and, and, and when things go wrong um, or, or right. So I guess it's fundamental to me to understanding life, which which is hard to see as not personal. I mean, of course, have have different reasons, different friends and family who've had diseases, and, and I think everybody has. So in that sense, I think it should be important to everybody, and it's hard not to be personal to see life and, and understanding biology as, as a important part of um, you know who we are. I'm Shelley Schlender. David Pollack is a professor at the CU School of Medicine. His new study appeared yesterday in the journal Nature Ecology and Evolution, Its title is Sequence Entropy of Folding and the Absolute Rate of Amino Acid Substitutions. It gives a new way to think about how mutations to proteins influence how they work and how to find those mutations. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. If you ever ponder what the heck the world of tomorrow will be like, our next guest is right there with you. Dr. Kelly Wiener-Smith is an adjunct assistant professor in the Biosciences Department at Rice University. Her academic research has focused on parasites, such as how certain parasites mimic their host, or victim, by doing things like invading their brain and mimicking their behavior. But her curiosity has taken her well beyond parasites and their hosts to ask all-encompassing questions like, what will the future look like? The future of space research, medicine, robots, and, well, us. Wienersmith and her husband, Zach Wienersmith, a cartoonist behind the geek web comic called Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial, have written a curiously funny yet serious book. It's called Soonest, 
10 Emerging Technologies That'll Improve and or Ruin Everything. The book will be, has just been published, and it explores everything from robot swarms to reusable rockets to cloning mammoths and bringing them and their creatures back from extinction. The authors will be speaking about and signing their book in Denver tomorrow night and in Boulder on Thursday night. Kelly, welcome to How on Earth. Hi. So, um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're so welcome. Thanks for being on it. So I'm so curious as to um, how you, with a PhD in ecology, studying parasites, as I mentioned a bit, uh, got interested in these big, big, all-encompassing questions enough to write a book with your husband about it. Well, I really enjoy working on things outside of my field of study. I love the parasites that I study. They're absolutely fascinating. <laughs> this was a chance for my husband and I to work on something together. And you're still married? Totally, and we're still married. No, <laughs> actually, we worked together very well on this project. Uh, like, a defining characteristic of our relationship is that we, we love talking about new ideas. So this was, this was a fun thing to work on together. That's pretty cool. So we obviously won't have time for all 10 of them, but I want to dive right into one that I think many in on the front range here in Colorado can relate to. There's so much space research that's happening. We've got Ball Aerospace, we've got the Southwest Research Institute, we've got NASA satellites around. So one of the key chapters you have is about asteroid mining. And I know our headline, one of the headlines mentioned uh, sort of moon cave mining. But in this case, you're talking well beyond that. What, what is it and what are some of the upsides? Well, so what, one of the fascinating things about this book is that a lot of the technologies were not what we imagined. So we imagined the point of asteroid mining was to go out, wrangle an asteroid, like catch it in a net, take, you know, for example, tungsten or, you know, some rare metal out of it, and then bring that back to Earth and then sell it for profit. But it turns out if you do something like that, you probably crash the market. And so no one's going to invest billions of dollars to subsequently crash the market and make no profit. Well, and to say so nothing now, of the cost of actually getting it, bringing it back. Right, yes. yeah. Which has got, got to be billions of dollars. Uh, and so now the, the goal is to go out to the asteroids, capture them, extract their resources, and then, for example, bring them to the International Space Station or build space bases or spaceships and use those as places from which we can go out and explore the universe. So basically so these meaning from the asteroids there would be the building blocks, the steel, the metals, the such and things. Exactly, yeah, the water, the silicates for your solar panels so that you can get your spaceship to fly for a long time. So ostensibly it's cheaper than hauling it impossibly from Earth. Yeah, so it costs about $10,000 per pound to get things off of Earth and out into space. And so that's super expensive. So if you can get the stuff in space and work it there, that might be much cheaper. And some of the downsides, I can imagine some nefarious things dropping down on Earth or being used against other people? Yeah, exactly. And so the scary thing about this technology is that once you get the ability to wrangle asteroids, you also have the ability to hurl them at Earth, which would be the ultimate weapon from the ultimate higher ground. And so, so to speak. The question, sorry? That's it, so to speak, yeah. Right, exactly. And so, so, yeah, you have this amazing technology, but then the question is, can humans trust it? And it's hard to say with our track record what we would do with that ability. And then maybe this is tangential on the technology side, but I think it shouldn't be, as the sort of ethical and economic questions about spending billions would be modest in actually locating and fetching these asteroid resources and essentially trying to further the move of humans to space when... We've got some problems to deal with here. 
Yeah, that's true. But, you know, throughout the ages, a lot of people have argued that one of the things that humans should be, you know, working on if we're interested in in preserving humanity is trying to get humans out onto other planets in case anything happens to Earth or just in general as, you know, an exciting thing for humanity to do. Uh, I do agree there's there's lots of problems on Earth that we need to be dealing with, and particularly we need to be dealing with things like climate change and trying to protect, you know, our own planet. But, you know, I guess I guess society as a whole can decide uh, how they want to spend their money on those those problems. And it's not totally pie in the sky, so to speak. There are actually um, companies, and NASA for that matter, working on this, right? Yeah, yeah. So we, we talked to a guy from uh, named Daniel Faber from Deep Space Industries. So there are indeed companies that are working on this problem, trying to figure out how you capture asteroids, which is actually a really tough problem, which we talk about in the book. Uh, so yeah, there are definitely people working hard on this problem right now. And then I think another one that's really intriguing and very much underway in terms of research is this brain-computer interfaces. Um, talk about that a bit and some of the applications, both for medicine for all sorts of things. Sure. So the idea behind a brain-computer interface is that you get, you know, a little computer that talks to your brain and it reads your brain, your brain waves. So, for example, your brain does one thing when you think about moving your arm and it does another thing when you actually move your arm. And so this device would be able to figure out if you are thinking about moving your arm and you actually want to do it. And, for example, if you're an amputee and you don't have an arm, your device would then talk to a prosthetic and go ahead and move the arm for you. And so most of the applications are for, uh, you know, quadriplegics and various people who have lost the, lost the use of their limbs. Mm-hmm. And it's doing amazing things. Uh, you know, one person was able to, like, move their fingers to pick something up after having lost the ability to use their arms after an accident. Uh, and then in the future, they, they, the people in this field foresee, you know, the ability to maybe help you concentrate better or stimulate your brain when you're maybe getting sleepy while you're driving to make sure you don't fall asleep at the wrong time. Um, so it's it's an exciting technology with, you know, a lot of medical applications in terms of giving people the ability to use their limbs back and then maybe in the future making all of us a little bit uh, a little bit better. Huh. How about a little bit smarter? Can we actually raise our IQs with these chips? So there's a, a little bit of evidence that if you, you know, like zap your brain at the right time or if you follow what your brain is doing, you can figure out that like, oh, this is the exact moment that would be best for me to be trying to learn something new. And so then the device could feasibly tell you, oh, this is, this is when you should go read Shakespeare, uh, and this is when you should go take a nap or exercise. But the, you know, the couple studies that are showing that, I believe, have been done on, like, rabbits uh, doing a learning task. And so we're many steps away from understanding how this works in people. So it's really hard to say if we're going to be able to pull anything like that off. But there's at least reason to hope that that might work out. <laughs> and what about, um, let's say, one other that really intrigued you or that you thought you understood and really didn't or that seemed to have really deep downsides, but lo and behold, you're like, Phew, this looks like a lot of upsides. Well, I think that the, so asteroid mining for sure was the chapter that had the biggest downsides, but cheap access to space was another one uh, where it was really exciting to get to read about it. And then at the end, uh, when you were reading more about the possible concerns, you know, for example, if we end up having reusable rockets that become very cheap, then we're suddenly burning tons of propellant, which is not necessarily a great thing to be doing for our environment at the moment. Pardon? Is it not so good? Yeah, Yeah, right. Not so good. And then additionally, if you have cheap access to space, you go back to having that problem of the more people you have in space, the more you have to worry about whether or not they're going to fling anything down at the Earth. Um, but again, if we can get up to space and be a space-faring species, that would be pretty amazing. 
and any message that you think is sort of a takeaway for those who want to know what can I do to improve myself or the earth through some of these technologies right now? Well, so what we thought was most exciting about this book is that there's so many amazing scientific and engineering problems that need to be solved right now that, that seem totally solvable if you just have the right people working on the problem. So I guess our greatest hope for this book would be that somebody would read a chapter, for example, uh, on the space elevator and decide that they're the person who's going to figure out how to make that cable. And so I guess for anyone out there, I would just say that there's lots of amazing problems to be solved, and maybe you're the person who could make these technologies happen. You never know. You're out there. Yeah. We know it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I had a lot of fun. I appreciate it. That was Kelly Wienersmith. She's co-author of the new book, Soonest, 10 Emerging Technologies That'll Improve and or Ruin Everything. You can see her and her co-author, cartoonist Zach Wienersmith, tomorrow night, October 25th, at 7 o'clock in Denver at the Tattered Covered Bookstore on Colfax Avenue. And then on Thursday night, the authors will speak at 7.30 at a Boulder Bookstore event here in Boulder, and that'll be held at the First Congregational Church. For more info on that, go to boulderbookstore.com. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by Shelley. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Colin Stetson. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line, 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Susan Moran.